to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and up inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nephag, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father God, we thank you. For your word, it is our joy to submit to it. Uh, we put our feet, uh, uh, we put our necks beneath the feet of the Lord Jesus and say, have your way with us, Father. Cause your word to triumph in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start this morning by uh, giving a side note uh, with respect to this uh, passage, and that is that this is a passage that's been very widely used by uh, uh, Jewish Zionism, and for a number of reasons. Uh, this is the first time that the word Zion uh, occurs in the Bible, and so some have used it for that reason. A second, it addresses the need for a strong military defense for Israel against Philistine attack, and you can see how they would think that was relevant. Uh, third, Jerusalem was a strategic area for uh, Israel's defense and their survival, and survival has been on the mind of Jews for the last 2,000 years. Fourth, this passage begins the focus upon Jerusalem as a sacred city and really the center of the world. Uh, the literal Hebrew in Ezekiel is the navel of the world, the belly button of the world. It was a very, very central in the thinking of Jews for 2,000 years. Fifth, this passage speaks to the importance of having a place that could unify a fragmented Israel. David's first action to unify Israel was to move, move his capital north uh, to Jerusalem. And modern Zionists have felt that Jerusalem could serve that function as well. In fact, their prayers for many years uh, when they've not been in Israel has been next year uh, in Jerusalem. And then last, and this is perhaps the saddest point of all, uh, many Jews have used this to justify their racism when it indicates that the Jebusites were not welcome in that city any longer. Now, I think it's a misapplication because uh, it was not every Gentile. It was the, uh, the, the Canaanites who were under God's curse, not the non-Canaanites. And uh, God uh, demonstrates that by making a court of the Gentiles uh, in, in the temple. But in any case, I think you can see how this passage could easily become an important passage for political Zionism. 
But while there is a, le- a degree of legitimacy to some of their points, the theology that emerges from this passage and onwards in the Scripture about Zion is far, far different from political Zionism. It points to a second David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's sad that these Zionists have completely missed him. He's so clear, especially in the later scriptures that come up, uh, so clearly presented in, in the Old Covenant. The second David was not interested in his own will being done. In fact, he taught his disciples to pray Uh, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And biblical theology of Zion is symbolic. It points to a heavenly Jerusalem that we are praying would come onto the earth more and more and transform not just Israel and Egypt and other parts of the Middle East, but would transform the entire world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the concept of Zion is really a foundational uh, passage, and since this is the first time that Zion is even mentioned, I want to talk about some of the gospel themes that are in very, very seed form hidden in this passage that are going to be developed later on in this book and the rest of Scripture. And we'll look first of all at the names of the city. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 11 says this, And David... And all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is, Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And it's twice called uh, Jebus in First Chronicles 11. Jebus, or the Hebrew, Yebus, uh, was the pagan name for Jerusalem. And it highlights the fact that the very center of David's kingdom had to be wrested from Satan's control. And really every aspect of what David was ruling over had previously been under pagan control. And to me, this speaks so well of redemption flowing from judgment. Those in the New Jerusalem were previously all God's enemies. Uh, We were the conquered inhabitants of the old Jebus. David stands as a symbol of Jesus who not only destroys all enemies, but who reconciles enemies uh, to himself. Now, you might think, okay, the symbolism's kind of blown there because he's killing all of the people uh, who are in uh, Jerusalem here, all of the Jebusites. But in biblical symbolism, you cannot have redemption without judgment. You cannot have the blessings that flow from the, cur- from the cross unless you understand the curse of the cross. Uh, you cannot have heaven without hell. Those who rejected David were indeed destroyed because they were rejecting the God uh, who was uh, David was uh, operating in his name. But even Canaanites were converted to Israel. And I want to give you some examples. The security guards for David, and there were quite a, quite a few of them, the Cherethites and the Pelethites were Philistines. They were converted Uh, to the God of Israel. Even though the Philistines were under the ban, even though the Philistines were uh, uh, under God's judgment, they embraced Jesus, their substitute, and consequently were able to escape from that judgment. And by the way, when when you sing or you pray the imprecatory psalms, like we did this morning, uh, you need to realize that judgment is part and parcel of even those who will be redeemed. Those psalms can be answered in one of two ways. The 
the enemies of God that you're praying those psalms against can either be converted, in which case Jesus bore that curse for them, right? Or they can be taken out, but either way, Christ's enemies are destroyed. And so those psalms are very important. It's not until the church wakes up and begins to use them we're going to be seeing some major differences in America. But let me give you another example of pagans converted. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 15 talks of Ornan the Jebusite. That's very interesting. Weren't all the Jebusites killed in Jerusalem when David uh, uh, conquered Jerusalem here? Well, apparently not. Ornan the Jebusite was said to be a man of grace who donates his land so that the temple can be built on it. This is not probably a fact that Zionists really would want to admit that the temple grounds came from a Jebusite who was a true believer. I think it's marvelous symbolism of God's gracious conquest of his people and through his people engaging in the work of reconciling the world to himself. And I just must read Charles Spurgeon's poem once again to you. I've read it three times already, but I just love this poem. And I think it captures this idea of redemptive judgment, both of those being knit together. Uh, He says, forth to the battle rides our king. He climbs the conquering car. He fits his arrows to the string and hurls his bolts afar. Convictions pierce the stoutest hearts. They smart, they bleed, they die. Slain by Emmanuel's well-aimed darts, in helpless heaps they lie. Behold, he bears his two-edged sword and deals almighty blows. His all-revealing killing word... Twixt joints and marrow goes. Who can resist him in the fight? He cuts through coats of mail. Before the terror of his might, the hearts of rebels fail. Anon, arrayed in robes of grace, he rides the trampled plain, with pity beaming in his face and mercy in his train. Mighty to save, he now appears, mighty to raise the dead, mighty to staunch the bleeding wound and lift the fallen head. Victor alike in love and arms, myriads around him bend. Each captive owns his matchless charms, each foe becomes his friend. They crown him on the battlefield, they press to kiss his feet. Their hands, their hearts, their all they yield, his conquest is complete. None love him more than those he slew, his love, their hate was slain. Henceforth their souls are all on fire to spread his gentle reign. We're going to be seeing that even Hiram, king of Tyre, becomes a genuine uh, believer. From this passage on, we see the theology of Zion developing from Jebus to Jerusalem to the heavenly uh, Jerusalem. It really is a cool theology when you read through those passages. But I think this is why Jebus is highlighted in First Chronicles and not in this passage. Chronicles was w- written to give comfort to the post-exilic people that what was restored, what was under judgment, can receive God's blessing. And I think there's no better way to show than to remind God's people that, hey, even Jerusalem was formerly under judgment and God changed it, cleansed it to a new Jerusalem. Now, of course, Jerusalem is the second name given. Yerushalayim in the Hebrew means foundation of peace and biblically important messianic uh, has messianic implications. 
Uh, the first is in Genesis 14, verse 20, where Melchizedek was the priest king of Salem, uh, which is a, f- a shortened version of this name. Now, what's the significance of that? It's pretty huge. Me- okay, and again, Zionists would not probably appreciate your bringing uh, that particular point up. In the Old Testament, as it develops this theology of Zion, you're going to find Jew and Gentile occupying jo- Zion. And in Genesis 14, 20, we have a non-Jew who is the priest king of that great city. Second, in that passage, both Melchizedek and the city of Salem stand for a heavenly person, Jesus Christ, and a heavenly city, and Hebrews makes a big deal about that. Now, we're just pointing out, we're not going to develop this, we're just pointing out these are are key symbols that later on, Scripture says, are types. That's all I'm showing right now. Third, Scripture gives us a theology of Jerusalem that speaks of God's rule in that city. But it alternates back and forth between the heavenly Jerusalem, where God's uh, heavenly kingdom is, and the earthly Jerusalem, where God's heavenly kingdom is coming and being felt more and more. It's coming on earth. And his will is being done on earth. So it's just a tiny paradigm of the gospel kingdom. Jeremiah 3, verse 17 says, Jerusalem shall be called the throne. The whole city was God's throne. That's how central Jerusalem was, uh, why the Ark of the Covenant had to be brought into Jerusalem in the next chapter, in chapter 6. Now, there's other reasons as well that we're going to be looking at that relate to worship and, and other things as well. But the Ark of the Covenant was God's mercy seat. It was His throne. So it had to be coming to Jerusalem because God's universal reign over all was now going to be identified with Jerusalem. Now, if you keep that in mind when you read Jerusalem, and that phrase, that that word comes up, I think it's 67 times, uh, very, very frequent, I think it'll help you to interpret some of the passages uh, where it happens. And all of this had been David's plan by divine guidance all along. He did not conquer Jerusalem on a whim. Uh, All the way back in 1 Samuel 17, when he kills Goliath, verse 54 of that, the head of Goliath, and he brings it to Jerusalem. Why would he do that? He's holding this head in front of us on that wall, and I think it is a statement of faith. You're going to have the same fate. There's going to come a time when Jerusalem itself is going to fall and Jerusalem is going to become a part of God's kingdom. It's going to represent something new, uh, the new kingdom of God himself, and it would become the foundation of peace. Okay, the next name is Zion. And throughout Scripture, the word Zion has reference not just to God's kingdom, but I think usually it has a, a special significance for the messianic kingdom of the new covenant. Uh, of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, the Father says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He's referring to Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are subdued underneath his feet. And so salvation flows from Zion, and Zion is destined to bring blessing to all of the nations of the world. You cannot read through the Psalms and all of the references to Zion Uh, without seeing that at minimum it's a reference to the kingdom of God, but especially to the new covenant kingdom of Jesus. And so when the author here names Jerusalem Zion, first time this word comes up, he's doing so prophetically. And if you simply read every passage that has the word Zion in it, which I did this past week, 
it'll blow you away at the, the kingdom concepts that are in there. Uh, one thing for sure it'll do is it'll cleanse you of any tendency toward this, uh, this two-kingdom theology that's been emerging in Westminster West and other places. You look at Zion and you see it's the comprehensive rule, the unified rule of Jesus Christ over all of life. And as he is reigning from the Ark of the Covenant, you don't have natural law uh, that's some nebulous thing. No, it's the written Ten Commandments that he rules by. And that rule of those Ten Commandments is where? It's over everything. It's not just in the church. It's over all of life. And uh, I just love the Psalms of Zion. They will cleanse you of dispensationalism and defeatism and discouragement and apathy. Those Psalms will give you a burning passion to see all of life in submission to the second David, Jesus Christ. The fourth name is the city of David. The Holman Bible Commentary, when commenting on the parallel, says this. The verse makes it sound as though the location known as David's city had been there all along, and David merely claimed it for himself. And that is exactly the way the chronicler wanted us to read it. David took possession of what was already his. He was possessing his possessions. And we too are called in the book of Hebrews to enter more and more into the inheritance that Jesus has already given to us. You know, the Canaanites, when they were conquering the land under, under Joshua, he said, you got it, I've given you the whole land. But they had to possess it, didn't they? Didn't they? And it was a gradual process. And to the degree that they were faithfully entering into it, God gave them victory. To the degree they were satisfied with something less, God let the pagans continue to, uh, to, to, to thrive there. And so it's very important that uh, we enter into our possessions. Ephesians um, uh, 2 uh, talks about us being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's given us a bank account. And what we need to do is, by faith, be entering into it, claiming it. Uh, Revelation 2 talks about, about uh, us sitting on the throne with Jesus and Him giving to those who are overcomers that rod of iron. What's with that? I mean, that rod of iron belongs to Jesus. But it says we can smash the nations with that rod of iron through our prayers, especially the imprecatory prayers. All it's talking about is our reign with Jesus. We can be reigning with Jesus right now if we will walk by faith. Okay, we'll have more to say about the city of David later, but let's uh, look next at the king of the city. It wasn't just any ordinary king. David's name occurs almost 1,000 times in the Bible. He is an incredibly central figure uh, in the Bible. And when you look at the major prophets and the minor prophets, by far the majority of times that the name David occurs, it's not referring to David back there. It's referring to the coming David, Jesus Christ. And so he was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm just trying to show you, there is in seed form here some of the gospel that's going to later on be developed. Uh, look at verse 1. We saw last week the people said, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Now, it's a rather odd expression to be talking to a human that way. But Jesus, the greater David, has an even stronger relationship because through the incarnation, he became our bone and our flesh. The incarnation united us to himself so that we could be united uh, to the Father. And so again, the seeds of the gospel popping up through the soil of this passage. 
Uh, David is called both a shepherd and a king in verse 1. Now, let me read you just two sample verses um, that later use this to show that it's a reference to Jesus. Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24. And this is, this is speaking of Jesus. It says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. The first David had been dead for a long, long time, but this is referring to the antitype Jesus. And so Jesus is a shepherd who protects us from the enemy, who helps us to live in peace, and he's a king who not only rules in terms of God's law, he calls his people to honor God's law and to follow his law. So he's a king. Now, I won't take too much time to highlight the names of the former inhabitants, but the name Jebusite comes from the word to tread down or to subjugate. Now, they probably used that of themselves because they were the conquerors, and it had been an ancient city. They had been there forever. They were the ones who subjugated uh, others. But dominion is inescapable. It's either going to be a humanistic dominion or it's going to be the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ through his body, through his people. But they stand as a symbol of what happens to all those who are in rebellion against God. Now, they were so confident that David couldn't conquer their fortified city that they claimed, hey, we don't even need to defend it. Even the lame and the blind uh, can repel you. And David turns it around and he says, okay, all of you are lame and blind and we will indeed repel you. But it's a spiritual reference that he is giving there. And I think it's a perfect description of the spiritual state of unregenerate man. There's one more area that this passage speaks typologically to, and that's the twofold reason. It's really one reason, but I'm giving it here in two parts for David's victory. The first reason given is uh, in verse 10. The Lord God of hosts was with him. Just as God was with David and with Moses before him, God would be with Jesus. And this is one of the uh, themes that comes up over and over as to why Christ will have a guaranteed victory. For example, Psalm 91.15 promises, I will be with him. Isaiah 9 verse 7 promises that the second David is going to have victory. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, will achieve this. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so the second David, Jesus, is he going to fulfill the Great Commission? Yes, of course he will through his people, because not only is Yahweh with Jesus, Jesus is with his people even to the end of the age. There is no excuse and no reason why we cannot believe that the nations themselves will be discipled. Now, for the, uh, the second part of that reason, it's really a God-centered um, reason. Uh, because of our union with Jesus, though, it does not exclude us. And so verse 12 says... So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. God blesses 
the victory of Christ of his people. Why? Because they are his body. They're united to him. Okay, so it's still a God's reason, and I think I've given you enough to show I'm not reading typology back into this. The Bible is rife with it. I touched the tip of the iceberg on the, the, the ways in which the Bible uses Jerusalem, Zion, uh, David as a, a symbol of new covenant realities. Now, for the remainder of the sermon, let me just quickly read through each verse and give a few more applications. Verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Now, two obvious applications that we can make here are the difference between faith and presumption. David had faith. The Jebusites had presumption. Now, both had confidence. Okay, David had confident faith. The Jebusites had confident presumption, but confidence alone is not faith. And I want you to notice three things about David's faith. First of all, it was not passive. Too many people think of faith as, okay, we just sit back and watch God do something for us. We're not involved at all. Every passage in Hebrews chapter 11, every example of faith is active. Faith always produces obedience to God. It's always seeking to please God. It's always very, very active. So David sought to possess his possessions based on the promises of a God who cannot lie. And without action, I think you got counterfeit faith. The second thing to notice is that David's faith was founded on the Word of God. Uh, why do I say that? I say it because God had commanded the conquest of all Canaan and he had never rescinded that command. Secondly, all the way back in 1 Samuel, God had revealed to David that Jerusalem was going to be a part of this, um, of, of this uh, passage and he indicated to Saul that Saul was faithless by refusing to fight against the Jebusites. He fought against the Philistines, but he refused to fight against the Jebusites and, and God considered that to be faithless. So, Israel failed to possess their possessions. They were satisfied with something less, just as Christians today are satisfied with something much, much less than God's will being accomplished in America, every aspect of American life. Too many times Christians say, oh, well, you can't apply the Bible to politics. and we, It's more for personal devotions and church that they do it. But we've got to be applying it to everything. Now, basing our actions and prayers on the Word of God is what it means to pray according to God's will. Some people say when you're praying according to God's will, you've got to somehow figure out what a secret will is. No, Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things which are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. So, praying according to God's will means you ground your prayers in the promises of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, the character of God, the desires of God as revealed uh, in His Word. When God commanded Israel to cross the Red Sea, what Israel should have done is what Psalm 119 says, I believe your commandments. Okay, And in fact, they did that. There are other times where they refused to do that. But why could they, with faith cross the Red Sea? Why could they with faith put their feet into the Jordan River to watch it part? It's because God commanded them to do it. God has not commanded us to cross the Red Sea. And if I tried to cross the Red Sea or 
or believe God is going to part the Missouri River, you know, as soon as I stick my feet in it, I'm going to get wet. You know, that, that's all that's going to happen. Why? Because it's presumption. It's not based on the, the commandments of God. But if God has commanded me anything in His Word, that command alone should be all that I need to, by faith, go out and begin to obey it, even if it seems impossible to do. And there's a lot of impossible things God's commanded you to do, aren't there? He's commanded you to lay down your life for your spouse despite feeling tired, despite uh, your, your temptations. He's commanded you to, to uh, love your enemies, to bless those who curse you, to do good to those who have done miserable things to you, okay? By faith, you can go out and you can do uh, the impossible. And so what you need to do when you're praying is fill your mouth with the promises of God, the laws of God, the attributes of God, the stated desires of God, and that will increase your faith. And anything that's not grounded on those things from God's Word, it's presumption. It's a counterfeit faith. And there's too many people who step out and they say, oh, God's given an open door. Let me tell you, some open doors lead to an elevator shaft that doesn't have a very <laughs> good landing. Uh, we've got to understand the contours of what God's Word has commanded us. Now, let me illustrate this. When God commanded the Israelites to possess the land of Canaan, Joshua and Caleb had faith, and they wanted Israel to immediately go out and do that. But the rest of the ten spies, they, they weren't convinced that they were able to possess their possessions, and they talked Israel into not doing this. And in De Deuteronomy 9, verse 23, God reminds the next generation, what was going on back there with those ten spies? was not only rebellion, it was unbelief. It was failure to live by faith. Now, God said, okay, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. And they said, ooh, we don't want to do that. So they go into the land, and they're going to take the conquest. And, and God says, no, don't do it. They go anyway, and they get whooped. Why? Because it's presumption. It was going contrary to the will of God expressed to them by prophetic utterance of Moses. And so... This is just a wonderful, I think, example of the difference between faith and presumption. Psalm 119, verse 66 says that faith acts by saying, I believe your commandments. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. David conquered Jerusalem because the commandment to conquer it had never been rescinded. He conquered Jerusalem because God had revealed that this was His will all the way back in 1 Samuel. He conquered because God had promised that the Jebusites could not stand before Israel. And unlike the previous king, Saul, David showed his qualifications to be king by being willing to finish the conquest that Saul had refused to do. So that's faith. Presumption, on the other hand, has confidence to do things that God has not promised, commanded, desired, or described in the Word. And as I mentioned before, it doesn't matter how confident I am that I can step into the Missouri River and it'll part. It's not going to part because God has never promised He's going to do that for me, okay? The Jebusites had confidence that David could not conquer them. Why? If you look at the geography, it's almost impossible to conquer that, that, that city there. So they have a confidence in creation, whereas David had a confidence in God. Okay, that's the big difference. And if you can keep that as a word picture in your mind, verse 6, the, the difference between faith and, uh, faith and presumption, I think it'll help a lot. Verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And I love that word, 
nevertheless. It flies in the face of our fear and frustration at the modern Jebusites that are out there. If the church would once again storm the gates of Jebus, by faith, that nevertheless would be true of our generation as well. On the other hand, if we're like Saul, we say, yeah, I'd love to run forward on this commandment. Eh, that commandment in the Word of God I don't really like. We pick and choose in the Word of God what we're going to follow. The Jebusites are going to continue to taunt us. That's going to be the way it is, just like it was with Saul. Verse 8. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now first of all, let me make it very clear. David was not prejudiced against people who were lame or blind. Okay, that's not what's going on here. In fact, in a few chapters, we're going to be seeing he was exceedingly kind to a lame man by the name of Meshvibosheth. And for the rest of his life, he fed this guy out of his own resources at his table. And there's other ways in which he shows that he was very compassionate to the disadvantaged. What was going on here is the Jebusites were taunting David. Ha ha, there is no way you're going to come in here. Even the blind and the lame cannot come in here. David is saying, you know what? You're all blind and lame. That's a statement of faith, first of all, that you are no match for Jehovah and his hosts. Spiritually, you're no match. You're blind, you're lame. But secondly, it's a spiritual uh, uh, qualification, really, of the unregenerate. And I think that parenthetical statement shows he's thinking of all Jebusites as blind and lame. They are the hated of David. God's already put them under the curse. They're headed toward hell. And so David says, how could I not hate those whom God hates? He's not talking in a generalized sense of other people. He is saying those headed toward, uh, toward hell are people that uh, I will also uh, fight against. He's not talking in generalities of Gentiles. But there's something else going on here as well. As a godly ruler, David had already tried to remove Joab from office because of his murder of Abner. We looked at that. He was unsuccessful. He tried to, wouldn't have been an impeachment, but he tried to get rid of him. He couldn't do it. Here he tries to get rid of Joab again. What he's doing is he's promising Joab's office to anybody who has the guts to crawl, swim, and work his way up that water shaft and get into Jerusalem. He probably thought this claustrophobic, exceedingly dangerous task, Joab's not going to do that. So he says, if there's anybody who's willing to do this, he can have Joab's job. Now, Joab probably threatened people, don't anybody dare go up there. I'm going to be going up there. And he did. Uh, First Chronicles says he succeeded in getting the first up that water shaft and opening up the city, and they were able to conquer it. And David's probably smiting his head and thinking, I was trying to get rid of Joab. Now I've promised that Joab has to be an officer forever. And so he's kind of stuck with his promise. And that's why uh, until Joab uh, commits another crime that David doesn't dare remove him. When he commits another crime, another murder actually, uh, he tries again. But uh, David's probably kicking himself. Anyway, verses 9 and 10. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and up, inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. 
Now, this city was not ceded from Judah or from any of the other tribes of Israel. It was newly conquered land. And Robert Gordon points out that it was administered separately from the other tribes. Very similar to Washington, D.C., which used to be the only federal land other than a few fortifications. And in fact, you know, we've talked before on how uh, the founding fathers in America, when they were constructing uh, what a republic looks like, they weren't looking to the Romans, they weren't looking to the Greeks. On so many levels, they were following the Hebrew republic model. And this is another just tiny little example of how they did that. Now, if you read it quickly, you might think that this is a power move on David's part. What? He's... He's claiming an entire city after himself. What's going on there? But it's the exact opposite of a power move. We're going to be seeing in the future that David hugely reduced the size and the scope of civil government from what it had been under Saul to what it had previously been under the judges and under Samuel. David's view of government was exceedingly decentralized, very limited uh, government. Uh, he, He was obviously in control of the military, but not a whole lot more, except for this little city that was the city uh, of David. And so David is setting up a limited sphere that's under his direct jurisdiction. And the first one city of David implies that the others don't belong to him. Okay? So one application is federal power. It's only implied here, but it's explicitly laid out elsewhere. The second thing that we see is that David prospered because the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, is another translation, was with him. His battles were not merely flesh and blood battles. He knew there are demons out there. There are angels on our side. And there are millions of angels backing up what David was doing. Why? Because the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angelic armies, was behind him. And we can have the same confidence going out and doing battle on behalf of King Jesus, knowing that the Lord of hosts is behind us. Don't look at the impossibilities out there like the ten spies did. That's grasshopper theology. They said we are as grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can do it. Forget about how big the enemy is. Look to how big God and his armies are. We are ambassadors of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And I think it ought to be encouraging to us. Okay, verses 11 and 12. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Now the first thing I want you to notice is that God approved of this arrangement. And people are puzzled by that. And some leaders have wrongly said that what David did here was a blatant violation of God's law because God's law had said don't ever make any covenants with the pagan nations around you or with their gods. And so this is the beginning of the downfall right, right off the bat. Uh, we're going to be seeing some seeds of Satan that are being sown. And yet 1 Kings 5.12 says that this was the wisdom of God in Solomon to continue the treaty that David had started with Hiram. And this passed that, that this treaty shows that God's hand was with David and that God established uh, his kingdom. How can we reconcile that with the commands... In the, in the law that he was not to make any treaties with the pagan nations round about him. Well, there's nothing in archaeology that helps us, but I think there are passages of Scripture that would seem to indicate that Hiram had been... 1 Kings 5.1 says, For Hiram had always loved David. Now, I bring that up because there are commentaries 
fact, almost all of my commentaries say, oh, Hiram's just in this for his own economic well-being, and they're very cynical about what Hiram is doing here. God himself said Hiram had always loved David. They were friends. Why would David be good friends with Hiram? Well, if you read through between Solomon and Hiram in 1 Kings 5, it gives every appearance that Hiram loved, knew, and served Yahweh, the God of Israel. I believe Hiram was a genuine convert uh, to, is, uh, to the God of Israel. And uh, through the rest of 2 Samuel, you'll see this developed as well of pagans who become God-fearers or even sometimes full-fledged uh, Jews. In verses 17 and following, there were many Philistines who were destroyed. So there is a, a theme, judgment, but there are also Philistines who are converted. There's a theme of redemption that flows through that's fully developed in this book. But redemption and God's does not mean we are sinless, and it does not mean we're totally free of blind spots. And so while the seeds of the kingdom of God can be seen in this passage, the seeds of Satan's kingdom were being sown as well, and the seeds specifically being sown here was the sin of polygamy. This was a clear-cut violation of God's law for kings given in Deuteronomy 18, where they were commanded to not multiply wives for themselves, whether it was for romance, political alliances, he didn't care. Don't multiply any wives. And I think it's interesting in verse 13 that he's concubines. Elsewhere, it's the wives listed first because of the sons. But here it's emphasizing the concubine for beauty. And it got him in trouble, and it was going to get him in royal trouble later on in this book. So let's... David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, also more sons and daughters born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Phia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. David's unbiblical romances would later get him into deep, deep trouble. There would be jealousy among the wives. There would be ungodly that would blossom into hatred and even murder among his children. You cannot violate his, his pattern set in Genesis chapter 2 of men being women men without suffering enormous consequences uh, of that sin. Great length uh, in the previous listing of wives. I'm not going to repeat that. Other than to say, this passage feeds of the kingdom, but it shows the seeds that Satan is so subtly sowing David's uh, life, and both aspects would blossom later. And you know what? This can happen to anyone. The very time that we're making incredible victories, incredible advances for God in one area, we can be sowing seeds of destruction in another area of our lives. And it doesn't have to be sexual. I had a California who was so involved in the political arena, we tried to encourage her to have very unbalanced. And her family suffered as a result of this. Very, very successful in opposing abortion and opposing bad things going on in the government schools and helping to get elected. But um, her, her kids needed her badly. And she pounced later, very sadly, my daughter was asking me, Mom, I've got to talk to you about something. And she was the urgent... Uh, saying, you know, can't it wait? I, I'm going to be late. I, I, I can't talk about it. And much later, much, much later, the girl finally got her own solution to the problem that was frightening her to death, and she got an abortion. 
are good, but they're not the balance that the Scripture calls us to. And the family really takes priority over other things in our lives. And David was not giving the priority to his family that he should have. Terrified, in hindsight, looking at polygamy. We're thinking, how could anybody in his right mind be polygamy? Back then, actually, kings were expected to do that. You weren't a very significant king if you didn't have a big head. All kinds of pragmatic reasons why people would do that. Uh, And so back then... But deal just like some of you commit sins that people think it's not a big sin. And they thought the same thing. It wasn't a big sin. But you know what? Every sin not turned from will eventually grow and grow and blossom so cautious in every area of our lives and not excuse sin simply because it's not a big deal. And so in conclusion, let me simply say, that this is the beginning of the theology of Zion. It is not perfect, but it is redeemed. The story of Zion is the story of the bride of Christ. She's the observing death and destruction, but God saved her, washed her, and by the end of the book of Revelation has made her into a bride prepared for her husband. God rules through Zion. But the contrast of harlot through the book of Revelation, and this bride is not only made up of Jews, it's made up of Gentiles. Shepherded by Jesus, the second David, a good shepherd who was far, far more consistent than David ever in his fold. Gentiles like the Cherethites, Pelethites, Gibeonites, Ittai, the Gittite, Uriah, the Hittite, and the Zion of God who are a part of the people of God. You must not elevate your David's was a faulty man. And you cannot imitate everything that he did. He looked to Jesus, David. Uh, Even though he was imperfect, He looked to Jesus, who was the author and finisher of his faith, and we too must look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and all of the symbols and the metaphors that are strewn through it. What a picturesque book, uh, a lovely book that you have crafted for us, and I pray that you would help us to enter more and more into the loveliness of the salvation Uh, that is so comprehensive in ushering us eventually into a new heavens and a new earth. We look forward to that time when we will be freed from every vestige of sin. And in the meantime, I pray that you would make us to be more and more consistent with your word. Show us any blind spots that we have in our lives, even as David had blind spots. We don't want, Father, to be sowing seeds of destruction. Open our eyes that we might see and turn from our wicked ways, that we might be as holy as it is possible for sinful people to be. Cleanse this, your church, and even though, Father, we're a small church, I pray that you would leverage the efforts that we engage in uh, far out of proportion to our numbers because you, the Lord of hosts, are with us. And we pray that you would encourage your people with this thought. In Jesus' name, amen.